Blog Talk Radio. edition of the cheapest meal presented by deep fried draft my name is brian bosarge uh we got a big episode today talking all things cleveland browns we're going to get to that in a second we hope you've listened to our last three weeks of episodes where we've talked about the 2018 nfl draft we're going to talk about that again today uh but like i said we're going to talk all things cleveland browns today with my guest and my guest today is the Cleveland Browns writer for NFL Spin Zone and the connoisseur of the pulled pork sandwich. He is my good buddy, Pete Smith. Pete, how you doing today? I'm good. I, and speaking of which, that would uh, not only is the, the brick pit newly renovated, but allegedly there's talk of new, even better pulled pork in the Mobile area. Yes, I can, I can tell you that uh, I have personally sampled some damn fine – uh, pulled pork and some ribs at the uh, Boar's Hog Barbecue, which is conveniently about a mile from my house. So that's very nice for me. Not so nice for you in, you know, the Ohio area where, you know, I guess pulled pork is not so great. Uh, no, I mean, we, we do things, we, we have our own things we do well, but when I go to the Senior Bowl, I'm more than happy to uh, feast on pulled pork, uh, and uh, the uh, seafood that uh, Mobile has to offer. Yeah, and it's damn fine at that. But uh, we can talk about all the barbecue and seafood at a later date. We're here to talk about the Cleveland Browns, 1-31 the last two seasons. You know that all too well. But, uh, Pete, you're one of the first ones I saw hyping up uh, Baker Mayfield, the quarterback from Oklahoma at number one. Uh, you've been one of his biggest cheerleaders. I got two questions for you. Did you ever actually think that he'd end up being the pick at number one? And then the second question to follow up that is, how does Hugh Jackson screw this up? Um, I thought there was a good chance he was going to be the number one pick, and then I got weak at the end and and thought they were going to go with the kid from USC. Uh, It seemed like everything was pointing them actually doing it. But, um, you know – with John Dorsey, who is the ultimate in saying a lot that says nothing, um, he actually did insist at one point he didn't care about height. And when you got past height, I don't know how you could basically go with anyone but Baker Mayfield simply because he was the, you know, far and away the best quarterback. Uh, you know, that was the whole thing is all these people talking about, well, if he was six three, he'd be the guaranteed number one overall pick. And, you know, if he's not, so what changes it? And I mean, I think in the end, if Baker Mayfield's successful, uh, that we're going to look back on this draft class and all these people who are worried about Baker Mayfield, ultimately it's going to come back to, well, he was the most efficient quarterback in the class. He had more than enough arm, a ton of experience, ton of success, uh, super hard worker. And then the issues were, well, he's short and we think he's, you know, we think he's got character concerns, which may or may not really have. So the, the question, you know, the question marks that people had seemed somewhat contrived uh, in the end. So I guess 
to me, he was the safest pick at quarterback, which a lot of people didn't agree with. Um, as for Hugh Jackson, I mean, I, the, the way he screws it up is playing him. I mean, and it's not to say that I think Baker Mayfield is equipped to play, and I think there's a chance that he could just beat Tyrod Taylor outright. And I, and I think, honestly, when, it, when fans go to training camp, they may see Baker Mayfield look better than Tyrod Taylor, and that's because Tyrod Taylor is a guy that, you know, if he makes two reads and pulls, they're going to whistle a play dead. You're not, it's not going to look very good. When it's not when it's when it's not full contact and he can't do what he sort of does, so in that sense, Mayfield look may look decidedly better in that standpoint. But uh, so much of this seems to be that John Dorsey basically said has it with Hugh that I've given you Tyrod Taylor, I've given you Jarvis Landry, I've given you Carlos Hyde. If you can't win with this, you're not really going to get the draft, the 2018 draft anyway. Uh, so th- this is sort of you. Uh, a, 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 an experiment to find out who his, who his 2019 head coach is going to be. Who's his head coach for Baker Mayfield? Who's his head coach for all these players he drafted? And, and I think that's ultimately what's going to happen. But, you know, the with Hugh, it's just the biggest thing he, he gets himself in trouble with is, is he'll talk too highly uh, like he did with Sean Kaiser last year. He, he just kept – insisting of how great he was. He had a franchise talent, this, that, and the other thing. And then, you know, he couldn't play. And and you're just, the whole season was just Hugh consistently putting his foot in his mouth and then ultimately turning on the kid and basically saying he couldn't play dead. So I, I think Tyrod Taylor helps in that respect that he's not going to have this guy where he's consistently talking him up. Now, it's not like he's hiding from praising Baker Mayfield, but he's very measured in, in, in his praise. And I think Tyrod Taylor is helpful for that. Last thing on Baker Mayfield, uh, how much uh, influence do you think Scott McLaughlin had on uh, John Dorsey with this pick? I don't know. Uh, and that's a really good question because obviously he was the one guy that was sort of like the, you know, a, a genuinely well thought of talent evaluator who was out in the public public sphere who said Baker Mayfield's the best quarterback in the draft and then he gets hired by an NFL team so you're thinking uh, well he's going to sit there and 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 talk about how great Baker Mayfield is and I'm sure on some level he did uh, but the the Browns had basically like 30 lieutenants in there uh, with with Elliot Wolf with Alonzo Highsmith with uh, Andrew Barry with you know, the analytics department people. And and it's unclear as to who really had his ear, but the story they're going with is, is that they didn't tell each other uh, who the, their top quarterbacks were up to a certain date. And then they all came back and, and came back and all said universally Baker Mayfield was their dude. And that was sort of the, where the decision was ultimately made. Uh, I guess that happened basically right after they finished the pro days where, where Jimmy Haslam went and uh, saw Sam Darnold and, and went with Josh Young, which has threw everybody into sort of this assumption that it was going to be one of those two. But that's the story they're going with. How that actually played out, I don't know. But let's put it this way. John Dorsey said the decision was unanimous, and there were only two quarterbacks that you could conceivably say – the entire organization could rally behind. And those were Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold, because there's no way you were going to get 
you know, 10, I don't think you can find 10 people on the street uh, who are going to tell you Josh Allen could play. So, I mean, and, and, you know, Josh Rosen and, and John Dorsey, you know, before he was hired was not high, not high on, on Rosen. And, and I don't know if he uh, sort of got past that or if that was always a problem, but there's this lingering sense with the Browns front office, but there was something that nobody can put their finger on and they're not telling that they didn't like about Rosen. So it was, if you follow everything that said, the only two candidates that ever made any sense were Darnold and Mayfield. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the way I, I gathered it too. Although I think me and you both were really high on Josh Rosen more than we were say Darnold or uh, Allen, but uh, let's move on to some of the other draft picks and, uh, my question for you is, do you think, uh, in your opinion, was pick four too rich for Denzel Ward? Yes, but I would say that pick four is rich for anyone who is on the board. I mean, if you're realistically talking about it, was Bradley Chubb worth the fourth pick? It wasn't to me. Uh, and certainly that was the guy I was sort of higher on uh, out of those two picks. But I think it didn't matter who you took, you were going to get, sort of slightly shortchanged. Now that may ultimately work out, but I mean, you're talking about Charles Woodson level pick for Denzel Ward. And and I don't think that's fair to his expectations. I think he can be a pro bowl corner, but I don't think he's going to be, you know, a franchise changing uh, player. Uh, You know, and I, I don't think that's realistic if people are looking that. And I think, I think the fact that he went to Ohio State and there, this team more than maybe any team in the NFL has a weird obsession with a, a local school uh, may help in that sort of not getting you know too far over their skis in terms of expectations. If he's not you know super outstanding, that it's going to be a massive disappointment. Uh, but he can be a very good player. But I, you know, this is why so many people are advocating take your quarterback at one and then trade down from four and hope to get, you know, a couple of other picks because I think, and, and I, I, I think you agree that, you know, there was this clump of players that probably went from about, you know, any non quarterback to about 15 where all these quarterbacks, maybe even later than that, where all these players were pretty much even. And in fact, if I was going to say, uh, you know, I, I had it where I had Bradley Chubb, Harold Landry, and then my my next guy after that, I think, if I was uh, DJ Moore. And out of those guys, I think DJ Moore's got the most chance to be a superstar type player, and he fell all the way to the twenties. So I, I don't think it was ever realistic anything was going to pay off in the way uh, that fourth pick would sort of demand. And I think. The other part of this is that Baker Mayfield, if he's, if he's, you know, what he's supposed to be, I think he's going to cover for a lot of sins. And, and that's to say that if Denzel Ward, he can't be a bust, obviously, but if he's a good or he's a great, but he's not an elite player, uh, I think, I think ultimately people will be happy with that as long as Baker Mayfield is as he's supposed to be. Yeah, I agree with that too. I had Denzel Ward as, my number three corner, 17 overall. So obviously I thought that was a little high, but like you said, you could have lumped a mess load of players there in it for, and any of them could have made sense. 
But uh, let's move on to the second round now. And uh, I love the player in Nevada offensive lineman Austin Corbett, but uh, does he fit on this year's Browns offensive line? And if he does, where is that going to be? If he plays this year, it'll be left tackle. Um, And certainly I was surprised with the pick initially. Uh, I thought, I thought if they were going to take an offensive uh, offensive lineman, they would have taken an offensive, a a lock offensive tackle and Connor Williams was sitting there screaming at you. So I thought that was going to be the move they made. Uh, I thought, you know, going into it, I thought Austin Corbett was more of an interior guy and ultimately he may be, Uh, but since they've made the pick and I've gotten a chance to look and, and, and go through it, uh, I don't think he's a lock to be an offensive tackle, I, I, but I think there's a few things that can be cleaned up where he can be an offensive tackle. Uh, but uh, and he's going to compete with Sean Coleman for that job, and we'll see. And and there are a lot of people who, you know, both in and in in the Cleveland area and then around who think Sean Coleman can't play. I think there are people in in Berea who are way higher on Sean Coleman than, than most fans are. Now, I, the, the the thing I don't know is if any of those people are the head coach or the GM. But like Joe Thomas, you know, with his retirement and his rehab, he's sort of become, you know, this offensive line coach type tutor guy. I know he loves Sean Coleman. Uh, so, you know, I think it'll be a good battle. But let's say that, Sean, that, that Corbett wins the job and he's the left tackle. In in, a, in probably two years, uh, they're going to move on from Kevin Zeitler. I would not shock me at all if ultimately they draft another tackle uh, and move then move Corbett to that right guard spot. Uh, you know, if you look at the way the Packers have drafted and the they've taken front office guys from there, and the way Dorsey drafted with the Chiefs, I think ultimately he, they're going to end up if they don't get fired before this, you know, I think they're going to end up with basically five offensive tackles up front. And right now they have four. Uh, Treader, their center, is a former offensive tackle in college uh, at Cornell. Batonio was obviously uh, a tackle at Nevada. Corbett's a tackle was a tackle at Nevada. And then uh, Hubbard, the offensive tackle they signed, uh, was a tackle. So I think, you know, ultimately in a couple of years, Zeitler sort of sticks out like a sore thumb athletically compared to everybody else up front. He's not terribly light on his feet, but he's just a phone booth mauler type. Uh, and I think they're going to want to get ultimately more athletic. And when his contract sort of can move on and they're not, you know, super thrilled with the return on that, then, then I could easily see Corbett ultimately moving on. If they find another guy they like better, whether that's this coming year or, you know, in two years where they find, you know, a stud left tackle they like that can then be that guy. So we'll see. Um, it, the worst case scenario is Corbett becomes an extraordinarily valuable uh, swing guy who can probably play four spots, maybe five. I know some people think he can play center, uh, and that would certainly be valuable. Now, that would certainly frustrate Browns fans who, you know, are so used to and ex- uh, expecting of guys they draft to basically play now, but that's sort of how good football teams ultimately work. They, they have guys that can get picked high that don't have to play right away uh, and can still be extremely successful. 
and if you look at the AFC North, you see that a lot of places. Pittsburgh uh, is a good example. Cincinnati is a good example of you know, hiding uh, first-round corners for five years, picking up their option before they even get on the field. Um, so, you know, I, I think there will be some frustration if Corbett doesn't win that job, but I think that's actually a step in the right direction for this organization. Um, I know you was really high on uh, Nick Chubb, and I know you like him a lot. What do you think separates him from the other backs on the Browns roster? Uh, to me, Nick Chubb has franchise talent. Um, and when I ranked him, Saquon Barkley ultimately ended up as much as I criticize him, and, and I'm happy to do it. As much as he's an athletic freak, he drives me nuts the way he runs the ball. Um, having said that, it, it, when I ranked him, Saquon Barkley was number one. But the guys right behind him, Nick Chubb and Royce Freeman, were barely behind him. I, don't, I have no idea how Royce Freeman lasted as long as he did. Uh, and, and, and obviously, I was really high on Darius Geis. He didn't do all the testing, so I sort of had a dock of my hair for that. Um, but in terms of what you want to see from a ba- back, Nick Chubb is an athletic freak, uh, and, it, and it's sort of more impressive given the, the injury he had um, in college to be able to come back from that the way he has and to still test like an elite athlete. Now, that's um, one part of it, but when you actually watch him on the field, he's just unbelievably smart in how he plays, um, he, how he sets up his blocks, how he accounts for guys who aren't blocked and sort of helps out his blocking scheme, makes it so they don't have to do as much of the workload. Uh, And then, you know, you finally saw him get his speed back in a meaningful way where now he can set himself up and he's 227 pounds, but then he bursts through and he's just got tremendous speed where he can take, you know, a quick, uh, you know, a short, looking run and bust it for a big one. And suddenly now you've got some corner trying to tackle this enormous guy. His balance is outstanding. Um, he blocks. Okay. He's not much of a receiver, but for what the Browns have really needed, uh, they didn't get from Isaiah Crowell is they needed somebody who could own in between the tackles and they have a guy who can do that. And, and they signed Carlos Hyde. Fine, I guess. Uh, I wouldn't have done it, but it's the same sort of concept where he's a power guy. He's an inside runner. He's a you know yards after contact type guy. He's a more, more of a battering ram. But in terms of what you look for in a special player, Nick Chubb just on paper anyway. We'll see it uh, when when he get out gets out there. He blows away Carlos Hyde uh, in terms of sheer physical talent and his sort of feel for the game. Uh, and, and ultimately what's going to, what you hope would happen if you're the Browns is you're going to have this, this guy who can be a feature back who can, you know, take 20 carries if he needs to and pounds the football. And now you've got Duke Johnson, who's a nice little back out of the backfield, but he's way more dangerous as a receiving threat. And the guy can line up anywhere and make plays. And if you get into a situation where, you know, you settle this contract extension with Duke Johnson, you have Nick Chubb, and these guys are both going, you've got a really nice backfield tandem. And, and I would argue uh, if, if Chubb's, you know, anywhere near as good as I think he is, um, that they'll have the best sort of two-back tandem in the AFC North 
uh, but you know, head to head with with the Bengals and and, and Mixon and Bernard, uh, that becomes a really really nice setup for them. And more more importantly, you know, in a way they didn't have last year. Whether it's Tyrod Taylor or Baker Mayfield, it's going to take a lot of pressure off those guys and really help them out. And Tyrod and you know Baker Mayfield are both guys who thrive off of play action, uh, and and hopefully that will open up plays down the field uh, where they've got all these athletic studs that can just hopefully stretch the field and make plays. Um, I believe we both uh, thought that Miami edge rusher Chad Thomas was a big-time reach for the Browns at 67. Uh, What do you think the Browns saw there, and what's his role probably going to be in 2018? What did the Browns see in him? I don't know. Um, He's big. I mean, he, he looks, um, but, you know, and he's got length. They really like length in their defensive linemen, uh, especially off the edge. But he's not nearly the athlete you think he would be uh, for, for how good he looks. And maybe they, maybe, you know, this is a situation where, they, you know, when they privately worked him out or something, that they, he did better than they thought he would. Um, but in terms of, like, what you see on the field, Miami didn't have a guy like, you know, they just sort of swarm at you and they had all these guys attacking and somebody was going to make the play. Um, Chad Thomas is a really good run defender. Um, he drops well, which I guess Greg Williams probably likes because they like to drop to defensive linemen, but as a pass rusher, there's nothing there. Uh, he can't use his hands or hasn't used his hands well. Um, he's not very nuanced. Once he gets blocked, he's basically stoned. Um, you're basically hoping that, you know, in the way Miami did it is they just send so many guys or had enough of these athletes that were better than the opponent where, you know, somebody was going to come free and cause a problem. And Chad Thomas was, was a guy who would, would uh, occasionally break through with that. But it's not like he stood out and was some, you know, obvious stud compared to the rest of that defense. It just wasn't there. Um, I, I guess the Browns are thinking that they can basically take what they think is a, a raw piece of clay and make him into something that he hasn't shown to be. But if, if it was me, uh, I would have wanted a better athlete um, for that. Uh, I would have wanted, you know, a little more on tape than I saw. And, and I think there are guys that went later in the draft. And one guy, one guy I really liked that the Ravens got and Zach Sealer from, from fair state was a guy that I thought made more sense um, in that type of role. And they got him in, you know, the sixth or seventh round, uh, you know, I just, you know, it, it, they traded back. So it's technically a third round pick, but this was the whole, they have three second round picks and, you know, from all indications, if, if they didn't trade down a couple spots, they were going to take Thomas at 64. And, and I just don't see how they're going to get the return on the investment. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if he's off the team in 18 months, um, you know, just because he can't do what they're expecting out of him. And, and you know, this is a, a defensive line group that needs depth. They've got three what look to be studs and then they've got a lot of guys and they need to find somebody else that can do something. And I just don't see how uh, Chad Thomas is going to be that guy. 
Uh, you're one of the few people out there who stress character over win- the win at all cost mentality, especially when it comes to the Browns. Uh, you see, seen constant. I mean, I personally, as a Bengals fan, have seen what you know these characteristics can do to your team, you know, through the years. But uh, so I know the selections of uh, Florida wide receiver Antonio Callaway, Lafayette corner uh, Simeon Thomas, and to a lesser extent, uh, undrafted uh, tackle Desmond Harrison. That probably didn't sit well with you, did it? Um, Antonio Callaway drives me nuts. Um, first, the receiver class was loaded. Uh, and, and you could make the argument if you wanted to that they didn't have the you know the top top Julio Jones AJ Green guy. Uh, I would have argued, and I'll still argue that, that DJ Moore is that guy. But even if you, let's take that aside, and just from a depth standpoint, there's no such thing as a bad receiver class. It just doesn't exist anymore. Um, with the you know the amount of teams that are ranked four and five wide, there are just so many opportunities for receivers to shine. So in the fourth round, you could have gotten, you know, a guy who's really talented, really productive, and not an idiot off the field. And it's not, you know, to me, the juice just isn't worth the squeeze with Antonio Callaway. And it's, you know, drugs. He failed the idiot test at the combine. He was involved in a a ridiculous scandal of – falsifying credit cards uh, with a bunch of other players and then buying electronics from the school's bookstore. And then some of those players, and it's not clear if Callaway was one of those guys, then sold electronics on the street for cash. Um, That's a lot to do. And then on top of that, even if you took all that away and he was a perfectly fine receiver who, by the way, didn't play this last year because he suspended for the entire thing. Um, John Dorsey made the, tried to make the argument that, and I think some of this was, was a result of trying to defend the character, you know, the, the character allegation. He made the argument that he's the second most, most talented receiver in the class. And I don't know how you can make that argument. I, I just don't see um, what he's talking about. That doesn't mean Antonio Callaway isn't talented. He's, he's a good looking player, former tailback, uh, very physical uh, as a receiver, both of the ball in his hands and, and, and fighting coverage to, to create separation. He's got ability as a punt returner. But, you know, again, I just don't see how the risk is worth the reward, especially, and I don't know if this is true, but at least publicly they're saying that this kid's basically got one strike and he's out. So if he pops a drug test or whatever – and then you've thrown away a fourth round pick, you know, what is, you know, what is, what is the point of that? And, it, you know, it doesn't make any sense with Simeon Thomas um, didn't go to school. Uh, he, he took the, at least the young Cardale Jones approach of, I didn't come to, I didn't come to, to play school. Uh, he basically missed, I think two seasons worth of football for academics. He's 25. Um, He's, you know, was involved in some theft thing, I believe. Um, and, and uh, you know, in the seventh round, whatever. But at the same time, I don't know why they took a corner anyway. Um, they have a thousand of them. Um, so, again, this is another situation where, you know, you've got a guy who's basically 
proven he's not reliable and he's probably not going to make the team. Maybe he'll make the practice squad. I, I don't understand the thought process. But my whole thing is, you know, this idea that you can't win with a team full of choir boys, I, I wholly reject. And I, and I look no further than the Eagles last year. They don't have knuckleheads, and they just won the Super Bowl. Uh, the Patriots generally don't carry knuckleheads, and they, you know, they, they're in the Super Bowl constantly. This idea that you have to have so-called, you know, bad characters because it's football is crap. Why can't I just find? And and I don't think there's any shortage of guys who, you know, love football, work 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 their butt off, and then, you know, take care of business off the field correctly. I, I think it's a lazy. Uh, idea that well, you've got to get these guys who sort of have this edge. Why don't you just find guys who have an edge who are really good? Austin Corbett's a great example. Dude's a Mormon, and he's you know on the field, he's nasty. He's a finisher. He just kills people. So I mean, just find guys with that right mentality. You don't have to mess with this, and it's a lot easier to sort of have a a you know good work environment that's you know better than this. You don't want to be a front office who now has to like pull into the part. And this is a famous thing with the Browns a couple, several years ago is, you know, there's an anonymous Browns employee who the best, the best day, uh, you know, best days of his, of his job are where he pulled into the parking lot and saw Josh Gordon and Trent Richardson's cars there. That means he didn't have to go hunt them down or worry about where they were at, you know, just, <laughs> you know, this is the type of, and, and, you know, the NFL uh, is a business and it's, you know, you are going to go as far as your people take you. So, you know, just like if you were running any kind of company, you want to be able to count on your guys. So, you know, I don't see how the fact that football has pads on and people hit each other, you know, is that far away from, from that idea that you have to be able to count on your people. So I, it just, look, if it works out great personally, just me, I would. I don't want guys like Tyreek Hill on my football team. I don't want to root for that. Um, you know, a guy who you know punched and choked his pregnant girlfriend. You know, that doesn't. I, I want to be able to like my players, and 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 I I understand the people who are basically like, don't pay enough attention to the foot to football to really care about who is you know you know who is in the helmet, but you know, especially being in the position we're in where, you know, where we have the opportunity to get to know some of these guys, uh, you know, whether we know them really or, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, that you want to kind of like who you're dealing with. You want to have a reason to sort of be able to root for them, and it's not because they're overcoming some, you know, rape charge or whatever awful thing they may have done where, you know, we're basically saying football is the only way out for these guys. Crap. That's 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 garbage. I I love rooting for guys like Miles Garrett, who's just a great kid and and, and phenomenal football player. Joe Batoni, or you know, so many of these guys, where you just like, like you know, you want them to be successful. And if the Browns with this group are ultimately going to win, you're going to enjoy the hell out of it in part because you like the guys they they've assembled. Yeah, I mean. Uh... I felt, a, not going to lie, I felt a little dirty last year having to cheer for Joe Mixon. So I get, uh, 
I get where you're coming from with that. Uh, quickly, uh, fifth round uh, linebacker from Memphis, Jannard Avery. You like him? I do. Uh, I don't know why the Browns are at least right now projecting her to be their backup Mike Backer, but certainly I love what the kid can do. Uh, you know, he's obviously a guy that you know wasn't super high on the radar initially, and then people sort of got a hold of him and. And and then really really liked him. Seems like a great kid. Uh, you know, former power lifter. He's ridiculously strong. Personally, I think he is. He should be the guy that's backing up Jamie Collins at Sam Backer, and maybe occasionally if he shows the aptitude for it, which I think he did at Memphis. Let him be, you know, an extra edge guy, uh, an undersized edge rusher type. He's to me, he's a better. Uh, you know, stand-up edge rusher slash off-ball linebacker than he is just a true linebacker. Uh, so I'd like to see them do that, and I will see if that's ultimately where he ends up. Uh, but the idea that he's just going to be a backup Mike Backer is a little confusing to me, but, you know, I'm happy to have him on the team. I thought that was a really good pick. I was really high on him. I think uh, on the big board I had for the Browns, uh, he was 47th for me. Uh, so certainly I was, I was thrilled to get that, but yeah, that, that uh, he's exactly the type of guy that I think, you know, for the next eight months of Greg Williams, uh, he's, he's got the type of mentality that, and the type of play style that would be attractive to, to Williams. Uh, any undrafted free agents you think we need to look out for? Um, the only guy, the only guy I think has a real chance to make the final 53 is Trenton Thompson from Georgia. Um, now he's a guy that has had issues staying healthy, and there's some questions about his off-field, which is why he went undrafted despite declaring as a junior. But when he's healthy, um, he's athletic, and he's really productive, and you know. If you're looking to, to, you know, there's a game to sort of really appreciate how good Trenton Thompson can be. It's against Notre Dame, and when he's going up against guys like Quentin Nelson and stuff like that, he's a problem. He's an undersized defensive tackle. He's quick. Uh, he he is disruptive, uh, and he can sneak into the backfield. And the guy, you know, that 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 I think he was brought in to sort of really push. Caleb Brantley, who I hated as a pick, um, I think Trent Thompson, you know, if he's healthy and, and everything's right off the field, is better. Um, I think he does everything that Caleb Brantley does except better, and he's younger. So if he can sort of avoid injury and he can stay out of trouble and all that stuff, I think he's the one guy that I think has a chance to make the final 53. I think the, the guy I like that I, I'm hoping ends up on the practice squad is Christian DeLauro, the offensive tackle from Illinois. Uh, really athletic kid. Um, actually from this area. Uh, went to Green High School, which is really local. Uh, but, it, you know, in Illinois' offensive scheme, they actually flop their tackles. So he's got experience at both left and right tackle. Uh, you know, he had a pretty – pretty impressive game going against guys like Nick Bosa and, and uh, you know, the, the various defensive ends, uh, Sam Hubbard and those guys, uh, Taekwon Lewis, you know, in back-to-back plays, he'd be at left and right tackle and showed well against those guys. So I, I think if he 
I, I actually like his chances better than I like the kid from West Georgia. Um, I, I, I think that kid has a really weird build that's going to be difficult for the NFL. Uh, you know, being so tall and so light, I'll be curious to see if he basically put on a bunch of bad weight when they go to training camp to get closer to 300 pounds, but I have a really hard time seeing that work. Uh, I think Delaro actually has a better chance, and even though the West Georgia kid is far more hyped uh, to make the team, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, uh, last question on the Browns, and i got a couple other minor things, but uh, realistically, what do you think to, to get your uh, – Get you on the record win loss projection for the Browns this year. Four and four and twelve, five and eleven. I think their roster is substantially improved. They have a terrible coaching staff, and I think that becomes, you know, the lingering issue. I think anyone, you know, and I would have fired him straight up. I would have fired Hugh Jackson uh, after this past season. Um, I think that anyone who is, you know, hanging their head on this idea that if Hugh Jackson's a good coach but had a horrible front office, even though Sashi Brown was really good, um, I think this is the year where it's going to be just obvious that he can't coach. Um, and, and certainly they added Todd Haley, and, and hopefully that will help. And maybe, uh, you know, maybe Hugh Jackson will have some semblance of clock management. But as you know all too well with Cincinnati, um, that doesn't tend to get a lot better and you're basically just sitting there for years and years watching you know your team have horrible horrible clock management Mm -hmm. and you know this past year this past year they had no business going on 16 in the first place countless examples where you know head coaching decisions on clock or whatever just awful uh in the moment and i and i think this is the year where it's going to be pretty obvious just how bad that is. Uh, I think in some ways it seemed like they, they, they basically had to beg uh, or really scrape the bottom in terms of getting some of these position coaches. Uh, so I, I, what I think ultimately is going to happen is I think the Browns will end up with a top 10 pick again, which I wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't hate. The roster will look really good. And then hopefully between that and ownership not making itself look any worse uh, that that will then attract a good coaching candidate who looks at this roster and goes, man, I can do a lot of damage with that. Yeah, no doubt. All right, let's get a couple couple other quick things. Uh, Supreme Court ruling on spending, is it going to have uh, any effect on your work, uh, add to your, you know, give you some more stuff to do or not? No, I'm a giant coward when it comes to gambling. But um, I guess the only thing uh, – you know, I think the big difference is like, like let's say you're somebody like us who covers the draft and you feel really, really good about you know certain things and you want to gamble, and your state is one of these that makes it work. I think it becomes a lot easier to find places to bet. Maybe you didn't really have a good idea of where to go and how to gamble on these things. Um, I think this will make it a lot easier for sort of the average consumer who might want to gamble to, you know, throw in a little money uh, on something. I, it'll be int- what I'm kind of curious to see with this whole thing is, you know, in 
general, I don't think this will have a big impact on people's gambling habits. For the most part, I think it will just basically be the difference between doing it, you know, with you know, with your buddies or a bookie or whatever, and you know, doing it on on the record. But what I'm curious to see is if it gets to a point where, like, let's say, you know, the Bengals, you know, you know, the Saints host the Bengals, and you go to the game. And there's a window where you can throw, sort of throw some cash on it. You, you're going to go to the game anyway, uh, and you're kind of like, eh, I'll throw a couple bucks down or whatever. I'm curious how many of those people there are. I think that may be where this sort of has an increase on the fringes where, you know, and, and, and this applies to those people in the, you know, who watch the games in boxes more than anybody, I suppose. They have the more, more potential money to, to throw down where they just feel like making the, the game a little more interesting for them. Uh, that's, I think, where the, the bigger in- difference is going to be made. But me, no, I'm giant, giant coward when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> I've, uh, I've never actually gambled, legitimately gambled on uh, sports or football. It would just be football because I don't know enough about anything else to bet on it. But uh, with uh, the Biloxi casinos an hour away from me, you know, and like you said, Louisiana, it's it's going to be they're they're already uh, making uh, making preparations at some of the casinos in Biloxi, so um, it's it's definitely going to be in place by football season. I kind of did a test run last year where I was I was taking ten college games a week and just picking you know picking against the spread. Ended up fifty eight percent on the year, so that might have been enough to say yeah. I can do this. I'm going to go bet some money on some games. So uh, from, we'll uh, see how that goes. Like, I the, I don't think it'll have a huge, huge impact on professional football. But what I'm sort of interested in is for you, it'd be South Alabama. And for me, it'd be the University of Akron, where if, you know, you're sort of, around, you know, you have a, you know, you're, you're a fan or you're kind of a fan of your very local college team and that sort of makes you become a bigger fan of your college team Mm -hmm. that it gets sort of those people out a little bit more that I could see being a really nice benefit to this whole thing. What I think is going to be a benefit is like you said, like with the, with Akron and South Alabama and the Sunbelt teams and the Maxion, the, the, the Tuesday, Wednesday night college football games, ratings probably going to be up a little bit for those games now because people can throw money down on it, you know, theory. So I think that's going to be a big effect of that. Let's talk about the senior bowl. Lastly here, uh, Phil Savage, uh, who's been in charge of the game probably every year that you've gone down here. I know it's, uh, he's been in charge every year since I've had deep fried draft going, uh, they replace him with a longtime scout, Jim Nagy. Uh, do you think this moves good, bad, or is it indifferent? Um, I don't know. Uh, the thing I will say for Phil Savage that, that, you know, beyond the whole, you know, just picking players to go is he was very committed to making the senior bowl good for mobile. And obviously uh, for a few years for us, frustratingly uh, tried to make it good for the areas around that uh, forced us to make that hellacious drive. Um, (laughs) But I think that's sort of the big benefit that Phil Savage had is he was super focused on making it as good for mobile as much as possible. 